Welcome to the Open Book Podcast. What you're about to hear is a live recording from an event that took place at the Open Book Festival in September 2022. In this conversation called Beyond the Law, Andrew Brown, Superior Gloria in Glovu, and Margie Orford speak to John Maytham about power and justice in their novels. Welcome. Just sounds so exciting to say that <laughs> to book people at an open book festival that I'm momentarily struck dumb. Um, the last time I was on this stage, I was wearing stockings and high heel shoes and took about at the end of the final performance of the second run of Shakespeare in Love. And then there was a very long and depressing gap between that and this. Um, welcome to the first session of Open Book. It really, really is lovely to have Open Book back with people being able to sit next to people, listening to other people just a few meters away from them, talking about books. I can't think of a better way to start a Friday than that. Um, you have some clues. Oh, no, you don't anymore. The clues have been taken away, so now you have to guess which one of us is. Um, but I'll, I'll help you. I'm John Maytham, and the photograph... It, I sort of... I don't know where they got this, but I think it was done after I'd been made up for 10 hours for an advertising shoot, because I don't see that when I look in the mirror. On the left of me is Margie Orford, and if I had justice... I mean, if I had power, I would have wreaked justice upon her for making us wait a criminally long time before she kept, yeah, you see. Yes, yes, yes. And um, Andrew's book, many of you would have had a chance to read, and I'm sure many of you have read, but uh, Sipiwe's latest book and Margie's new book are books that have only very recently hit the shelves, so I'm not sure that anybody would have had a chance to read them. But Margie's book is called The Eye of the Beholder. And I'm not saying this, I would say this even if I didn't mean it, but I mean it. This is, it's very different from what we were used to from Margie, but different in the every best possible sense. It is a story of such power, so evocatively and meaningfully told. It really, really is very, very good. Um, Andrew Brown, I don't have to say much about. We all know and love Andrew and his many <laughs> ventures. You know, he takes off his he sort of wakes up in the morning and says, what am I going to be between six and eight this morning? Police reservist? No. <laughs> Lawyer? No, I'm going to be a writer this morning. And this is the result of that. And then The Quality of Mercy, which is, I mean, it's not a trilogy in the sense of one book following on from another book, but it's a trilogy in the sense that it is a book about a country and similar themes, and some of the characters from the earlier books return and where one was foregrounded by his presence in the previous book to this. This time he's foregrounded by his absence. We'll get into all of that. They, they, they're just such beautiful books, and it makes me so proud that South Africans are writing this wonderful, wonderful stuff. I, one of the issues I had while thinking about how to, to handle this was that I suspect that Margie's book and Andrew's book definitely are going to be in the thriller section of bookshops and libraries. Superiors, I'm not sure. Where do your books usually land up on what shelves? Magic uh, realism? What? Best, bestseller, John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. 
So um, there, there are issues around plot, you know, I mean, not issues in the sense that they're problems with the plot, but they're issues in discussing these books without giving away important things that happen as the book develops. So that's something we're going to try to have to navigate. Um, Just ask the audience to forget everything you hear in the session, then we won't have that problem. Forget everything you hear in this session. There we go, except Andrew's witticism that you can remember and tweet about. Uh, we're going to talk until about a quarter to 11, and then I'll open the, um, the floor for questions. We, we do have to finish at 11 because people need to get out and more people need to come in. The authors will be somewhere out there. There will be a signing desk, and please um, buy your copies and then take them to be signed. Can I, can I perhaps ask, just to go from here to there, how each of you de defines the, the sort of vague themes of the session around power and justice and the law in terms of your general approach? To, to writing and more particularly in the book that we're discussing this morning. Margie? Well, in The Eye of the Beholder, I think some of you will remember my Claire Hart series, which was really trying to put society to rights by police procedurals. In fact, Andrew Brown himself featured in one of my books, I think, because I needed a police reservist in it. Um, so I just borrowed him. But I, when I got to the end of the Claire Hart series, I really thought justice does not work for women. It does not work. You go to, say you have a rape trial or something, you don't get justice. So in, in this book, I've looked at much more the idea of what would a woman's justice look like? What is a kind of feminist justice? And I also realized that the um, prosecution or punishment for a crime doesn't end the suffering of the trauma victim, the survivor. So I was looking at what happens when a crime never ends. Well, how does that work? I also just stepped right outside of systems of power. The idea of the power and justice will kind of put things to right. So it sort of sits outside of that. It's a revenge thriller, I suppose, yeah. with lots of complexities. Because there, there are deaths. There are, are two historical deaths, and there is a disappearance which might be a death. But there are no lawyers, there is one <coughs> policeman, but he's not there as a policeman, he's, he's there as a really creepy person. So, I mean, it, it is, it's completely outside of the criminal justice system. There are no trials, there, there's no investigation, there's no police docket, there's no. just a kind of justice. It's, to me, it was a novel about sin rather than crime, and th that sort of exists outside of the narrow definitions that we try and deal with. It's about the psyche, too. Um, would you like to say anything about characters, yes, story? Yes, it's about three women. It starts with a woman called Cora Berger, who's about 50, and then her daughter and another young woman who's been very damaged in um, her early, I suppose, at the cusp of adolescence. And these three women are linked in ways that they don't quite understand, and the, the sort of trauma links all of them. I kind of flipped the thriller or the crime novel scenario on its head because there's a, disappear a man disappears. But somehow, I didn't do this intentionally, but I found, because he disappeared, the female characters had all the agency and the potency of the classical hero. They're moving, they're on this kind of quest, there's this, a lot of action. But what I was looking at is how trauma or crime plays out through a person's whole life and how then that acts in this very tight, I think it takes place over about seven days, how that affects the present when they all get together. So it's about mothers and daughters, 
It was about, I was thinking as well, what happens if we live in a culture that doesn't mother us, patriarchal culture. So lot, a lot was going on. Andrew, your, your books are more easily filed in a particular place. Um, they are, yes. I mean, you know, Eberhard February makes another appearance in this book, and it is a book about heists. It is about a criminal gang and the attempt by the authorities to stop that criminal gang from doing these um, cashing transit heists. Yeah, I think as a, as a lawyer and a policeman, I'm supposed to know what power and justice is about. You would hope so, but, but in fact, I don't. It's such a gray area for me, particularly justice. And I think writing is a way of me personally exploring that concept of where justice lies. So the book is, is based very loosely on the movie Heat, which is uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. And what, what I loved about that movie is that you're not sure who you're rooting for. One is a, a bank robber, one is a cop. They've both got flaws, they've both got human weaknesses, but they're both quite endearing. And throughout the movie, you're not sure who you want to succeed, and you know one of them is going to die in the end. It's a, it's a, it's a good Hollywood movie and someone's going to die. Um, and you're not sure until the end who you want that to be. And it intrigues me that all of us in this, in this audience, in this room, think we know what's right and what's wrong. But we'll then watch a Netflix series about a bank robbery and we want the bank robbers to win because somehow that money belongs to no one. That's the kind of that concept interminable Spanish series which never seems yes. to end. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that, they, that you just wanted to end, yeah, as opposed to for them to okay, succeed. Everybody yeah. dies. Yeah. And the grid is blown up. Yeah. Every, yeah, then you'd be happy. Yeah. So it's, in, it's intriguing to, to me. And uh, this evening I'll be um, interviewing P. Pasapik from Rwanda, where we're going to be talking about exactly the same kinds of things about why good people commit atrocities in a particular situation and whether we're all capable of doing that. And so what I enjoyed about writing Heist is that it allowed me to explore both sides of what's meant to be a dichotomy. Um, I enjoyed exploring the character of the Heist gang more, in fact, than I enjoyed Eberhardt, because Eberhardt I feel I know. I know what his values are, I know who he is but I got to explore the other side of the, of the coin, and I enjoyed that enormously. Yeah, we'll talk a little more later about uh, the mm. Andy de Quaba, the, mm. the leader of the Boko Haram Heist gang. Mm. And Sipiwe, your book is the one in, of the three in which the concept of justice is most obviously explored. The characters talk about it and mm. what is justice. Mm. So what is, what is your approach to, to justice, to law, to power through your literature and in this book? Mm. So um, in the three books that I've written so far, I think power uh, and abuse of power has been sort of like the thing that I explore the most. Um, but I felt that um, as a post-colonialist, that the one thing I felt we hadn't grappled with, and I'm, I'm from Zimbabwe, um, is what we want the post-colonial moment to do, right, uh, about the past. Do we want um, it to be sort of like a vengeful reckoning, or are we looking for true justice? And I think for me, those two things are different, and those two things are often confused for the one for the other. And I felt like most of the time, we this is not something that we actively talk about or discuss or have even tried to, as a nation, um, <clears throat> excuse me, come to 
to think about critically. Um, so we just act. Um, and I think, you know, especially for a settler colony, a lot of things have happened that do need to be addressed and sometimes redressed. But what does that actually look like? Um, and so the novel takes place within sort of like the in-between moment, right? Um, from a country going from a colonial to a post-colonial power. And exactly what is it that we want in this moment? Do we want justice for what happened? Or do we want to just sort of like do an eye for an eye? You know, they did this, we will do this to them. Um, so if for me, these are very this is a very important question. Now what justice is, is very gray. But I think it's something that we actively have to um, contend with. And I think this is something that we never did as Zimbabweans, which <laughs> explains a lot about the situation that the country is in. Um, and I think critically engaging with that question would have helped. Like, what is it exactly that we want to redress and address before we move on as a nation? So that's what the novel Because I mean, you're, you're uh, I was going to say your main character, but even the tiniest of characters in your books are main characters. It's wonderful. It's one of her, one of her many great gifts as a storyteller. She says in her acknowledgments that um, she owes a lot of her success to her grandmother who was a storyteller in the, in the best traditions of oral storytelling and she's taken all of that magic from her grandmother and put it on the pages mm -hmm. of books. So you can't really talk about major and minor characters because even, even somebody who makes a very brief appearance is given a rich, rich life. And, but, but perhaps the, the main character is Spokes Malloy mm -hmm. who rises just before independence in 1980 to a higher rank in the British South Africa police and in the CID than any other black person before him. And he volunteered to fight in the Second World War. And when he, and they were promised, the black people from then, Rhodesia, were promised that when they got back they would get some land to say thank you for their war efforts. And he got back and full of naive hope, he presents himself at a government office and says, can I have my bit of land please? And they go, um, well, we're going to give the white people some land first. And then there won't be much left after that. And the colored people are then going to get some. But maybe in the future, you'll be able to buy some land for yourself. An horrendous injustice. And he responds to it by becoming a policeman in essentially um, Rhodesia's version of an apartheid police force because that injustice upon his return from war makes him determined to fight for justice, to fight for the law being observed and people who commit crimes to be brought to account and he's incredibly successful at it but he is taken to task because what's a black man doing serving the white colonial government? Um, and this is something that uh, interests me because there's a whole way, I think, in, again, post-colonial settings where we, especially for a country like Zimbabwe that had a civil war, where we imagine heroes to be very particular kinds of people. Those are the people who went to fight the war. But what about the people who didn't go to fight the war? What about the people who stayed at home and were trying to do something different? There's a way in which the post-colonial narrative, especially like in Zimbabwe where we have Zanu and Zapu being sort of like, those were the two roads and those were the only things that black people who were fighting for justice were doing. That's not true. A lot of people actually didn't go to fight that war. A lot of people were policemen or were civil servants in some way and may have uh, supported the war effort in other ways but may not have, you know. And I feel like 
Part of what I try to do is to tell the stories of people who've been marginalized, the silence of tried to be erased from history. And I feel like when we have that monolithic understanding of what a hero is, a post-colonial hero, it narrows a lot of the black experience post, uh, pre-1980. Um, and so I wanted that also to be something that is explored. Like he is not what we would call a hero in the sense that we call Zimbabwean war veterans or used to call Zimbabwean war veterans hero. But he is, as you said, fighting for justice all the time and he's trying so hard to do the right thing. He's just maybe in retrospect will be seen as having been fighting for, in very black and white terms, the wrong side, but I don't, I want to muddy that and make it all gray. You know, what is the right side? What is the wrong side? Um, I mean, it's, it's striking about all three books that um, none of the crimes end up in a court and a sentence is not produced. Yes, Spokes has been incredibly successful over his career in bringing serious criminals to book. Um, but there, there aren't courtrooms, there aren't verdicts. And the thing, Margie, I'm sure you and I have discussed this when we were talking about the, the books in the Claire Hart series, We've talked about why people read thrillers, and I'm sure you and I have had the same conversation as well, Andrew. People read thrillers because it cleans messy stuff up in a way that real life doesn't. But you've decided, as you said, to, to upend that and say no, because real, you know, we must question these assumptions around what thrillers are supposed to provide because they don't reflect closely enough the damage that people in the pages of thrillers go through before Detective Tom Thorne finds the bad guy and sends him off to the Old Bailey. Well, I, th I think with the five Claire Hart novels, by the time I got to, to writing this one, um, I found that what you could resolve was kind of less and less. It doesn't, you know, people, especially if there's been violence, seeing somebody go to jail, yes, it tidies things up on one level. This book, The Eye of the Beholder, I explored a really simple question which I'd sort of drilled through, through five novels, of what does it mean to be viewed as, as an object, a sexual object? What does it mean to be looked at? And kind of, I was thinking, you know, I think any woman has had this. I've, uh, everybody I've spoken to, that moment in which you're just being a normal little girl, you're don't, not aware of being in a body, you're just running around, and then suddenly someone looks at you, it could be a stranger, it could be an uncle, it could be your dad, it could be someone, and you see yourself through their eyes as this transformed thing, and it usually happens even before puberty, and into your cells goes this feeling of shame, and you then, I'm so glad you're nodding like that, you spend the rest of your life navigating being yourself and seeing yourself. So that's that thing of what it means to be an object, to be a thing, is perhaps at the heart of this book, what it has meant culturally in a patriarchy. And it, I did get there through peeling off the layers of violence with my Claire Hart quest, which is why is South Africa so violent? It seems to me the intimacy of the family arrangements around how, how women are perceived as an object is key to that. So this book was about secrets and that secret, the secrets that women carry on behalf of men, the violence that we take in to ourselves in order to keep things smooth. So you asked me earlier, why such a long wait? I did go a bit mad, I have to say. I think I had a 
high-functioning breakdown from writing those Claire books because the thriller form was an accidental form around what I wanted to write, and I just looked at too much too up close. Um, and something happened to my mind, my heart maybe, but with this one, I feel like I got to the, 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 for me, what's the bedrock is what happens to women and how women carry shame and how a crime never ends, especially sexual crimes. Um, a crime against a child, we call it trauma, you go for therapy, but it's, it, that crime survives no matter how many times a man might go to jail for it, the victim still has it. And this book really, this woman, Cora Berger, the, you meet her at the beginning just fleeing this sanctuary into the snow, into this blizzard. I look at what happens when a woman loves a man and she finds out that he carries the worst and he's done the worst thing. What do you do with that? Because your heart loves him and your head says, no, leave and go. It's so easy, just walk away. And how do you get the head and the heart to talk? To me, that's where the trauma lies, to put it into language. Mm. Um, and then Angel, the younger character, I looked at a woman Angel who turns... Angel avenging. <laughs> <laughs> Angel Lamar, she was born long before this book. She just came to me one day. And she, so Cora turns her anger and her hurt inwards into a kind of very harm, harmful way. With Angel, I just thought, what happens if she's just angry? She's in a fury, like the Greek furies, and she turns it outwards, this avenger. Um, and reading that, I'm wondering which is, which is, which is the better approach. I don't know. You know, when I started this book, was, I mean, I love Angel. She's basically, she's just taking down anybody who ever harmed her, and you so, well, I was totally on her side. Um, if you don't be on her side, she'll come after you as well, but... <laughs> Um, I got to the end of the book and I thought both of these women have remained defined by the harm done to them. So I want to do a, a sequel in which, and this really is a question I don't have an answer to, what do we do with trauma? What would healing look like? How could this amazing young woman, Angel, with all this creativity in, in how she eliminates people, turn it into something generative, something for herself? I don't know the answer. Well, I'm, yeah, um, the, the book ends in a way that suggests a sequel might, might happen, and I'm very, very glad <laughs> to hear that it probably is going to happen. But, I John, mean, listening, to, you know, listening to, to what Margie's saying, um, what gives me such hope and, and joy is the extent to which the genre has moved on, the, the genre of thriller. You know, if you, if you ask, do you, do you read books? Yes, I'm a, I'm a fan of books. Oh, what do you read? Thrillers. You can feel the kind of droop and the lack of interest. Of, oh, okay, so you read the embossed book on the, you know, on the airplane that you toss away when you get to the other side. And thrillers are so much, the genre of thrillers is so much more than that. You can explore so much more than that because it is about exactly these issues of justice and power and how you resolve it for yourself and for others and for your characters. And I think there's, there's so much scope in, in the writing that when I wrote Cold Sleep Lullaby, which was the first authentic thriller, I, I hadn't thought of it as a thriller. And it was put in the category of thrillers in exclusive books, and I was a bit put out. I wasn't sure what it was, was doing there. And then I would be invited to talk on panels with 
fellow thriller writers. Like me. I feel like you. <laughs> I know, you can't get And you were a very that. good thriller writer. And I was like, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here. Um, so, yeah, I think it's such a wide genre that, that it encapsulates so much that almost your, your very first remarks about where does your book sit in the bookshop is almost identifying the problem, that it, it can't be put into those kinds of yeah. boxes. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, um, I'm reading a series of very academic essays about the thriller and how the thriller has evolved, I'm reading that at the moment. And I've always felt that the, the, the thriller is, is marginalized in a way that many books that are put into that genre don't deserve. The latest James Lee Burke book, which is um, his 90-year-old his successful writer character, Aaron Holland Broussard, and it is the most obviously supernatural of his books. He it's not that he sees visions, it's that things from the past, manifestations of evil, present themselves to him in the real contemporary world. And what James D. Burke is writing about is how evil has a physical manifestation. And if the history of your country is evil, as the wiping out of the indigenous population of America was evil, as the treatment of slaves was evil, as America going to war in Vietnam was evil, those things come back and they surface in the present in real and meaningful ways. And I mean, that's the sort of sense I get from all, all of your books, whatever, you know, however we might classify them. They're about pain, corruption, moral hurt, and how do we in contemporary times deal with that stuff? Sipi, what, yeah. what you were saying about the post-colonial moment and, and using a policeman, a man who becomes a, he tries to institute the law, struck me as so interesting because it's like this, a way of examining how a state might be made up and unmade. And I think it resonated so much with, I think what I was trying to do with the, the novels I was doing is looking at that. So can I, can I ask? So people, <laughs> no, Margaret, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did it feel to write that character who is so sort of vilified at once, you know, the sort of like people who went to fight um, and people who stayed behind? How did it feel with that sort of uncertainty, moral uncertainty of that position? So I, I think for me the the saving grace is that he actually um, is so invested in doing right that he doesn't see the gray area that he's in. So that comes from another character looking at his life and saying to him, you know, you've existed your whole life in, in this gray area. I like gray areas. <laughs> I think as um, former settler colonies, that's all we inherit, right? We, we, mm -hmm. we, we created a black and white world and we inherit the gray area. And I think how we navigate that is what's important. Um, and I don't necessarily believe in finding the line. I think, you know, it's to find the conversations, to find the things we can talk about, to find the ways forward, to do the work, which I think we don't do. Um, so he is doing the work. Um, I think that's what I liked about him. He is, you know, his grandfather and his, it's, it's a very drastic example, but his, his grandfather and his father were both sort of like hanged for what they did. So one of them uh, fought against the British and the other one um, did something that he 
was seen as a crime at the time or was then, you know... He got too close to a white woman. Okay, <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> and, um, and, of course, people believed the white woman who made her husband happy by saying that the black man had approached her with indecent intent and so hanged by the neck. Yes, yes, until they were dead. Um, so, you know, it's, it's when you inherit something so violent, um, it's so easy just to be angry. And I think ang anger and outrage are very easy emotions to arrive at. I think for me, what I liked about Spokes is that he was, he was trying to move beyond those easy emotions and find a, a way to coexist. Um, and I think this is the hard work we all have to do, you know, and I think it's the hard work we're all <laughs> very reluctant to do, let me put it that way. And so I think I, I liked him because he was showing me as a writer a way forward, right? Um, and I... I yeah, I, I did like that. So I, I, I like what he was doing in the novel and it allowed me to think through a lot of things and I like it when characters can, can sort of like give back that way, yeah. yeah. I mean, Andrew, Anile Graba, who is the leader of the heist gang, and as you say, mm. following on heat, you, you, you know you shouldn't root for him mm. um, because he's doing things which lead and have led to, to death, yeah. to murder to ugly murder. Is there such a thing as beautiful murder? Um, probably not. But at the same time, and this goes back to the kind of country that Andile was born into, mm. where his opportunities to put his very real intellectual and human gifts to better purpose, those choices are not available to him, mm. as they are not available to mm. a heck of a lot of people in this country. So, you know, one doesn't want to glorify crime, but at the same time, one has to have a sense of the propulsive forces which people, which put people like Andy Lengbaba, who could quite easily be mayor of Cape Town Absolutely. or a yeah. specialist surgeon or whatever the case, if he'd had, you know, if, if his life had taken different turns. I think that's, that's an important part of the moral ambiguity we've been talking about on the stage. I don't think that his values are any different to anybody else's, uh, to the, you know, the, the characters we like to ourselves. I think his, his values are good and decent and and hopefully he is recognizable uh, in us and, that, and he resonates with you. But circumstances have put him in a particular position where he had to make choices. And yes, he justifies them by saying, well, it's not anybody's money. So this is money that is in transit between banks or from ATMs to, to banks. And so you know, the justification is, well, nobody actually owns this money and it's insured anyway by you know, white monopoly capital, so it's gonna get paid out. No one's really gonna get hurt so long as we don't shoot the security guards. It's almost a victimless crime. And that's the way that he justifies it to himself. And it's not a hollow justification either. I mean, it's a, as I said earlier, it's a justification we all have when we watch a, a movie in which bank money is being taken or a work of art is being stolen by Tom Cruise. Or paper out of the office. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you do that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm disappointed. I work, for a, I work for a global media megalith. They won't miss it. But I mean, at the, at the moment, because I'm a cop, I'm on all these emergency um, uh, WhatsApp groups and other groups. At the moment, in the Western Cape this morning, we're in the middle of a taxi violence crisis that's blocked the N2, the R300. Nyanga is shut down. Kailicha is the red zone as we speak. Why that happened is that yesterday, Metro law enforcement impounded 100 taxis. 
And last night, the taxi owners met, and they were outraged. And they said, but this is our means of business, and yeah, there might be minor traffic infringements, but what about the price fixing of, that we're seeing at the moment with all the insurance companies? What about the tax that hasn't been paid? What about state capture? What about all, We are the, the small fish in all of this. We're trying to survive, and this is outrageous. And so today they went to the trenches, and stones are being thrown, and buses are being burnt, and the point is being made. Now, it's a crime, undoubtedly, and it's disrupted the entire city, and you know, many of us get annoyed with the amount of taxi violence we have to deal with. But there's an imperative there that is, how many people does the taxi industry employ? Thousands. It gets millions of people to work every day. Um, so it is a gray area. It is not clear whether you're a police officer, whether you're a lawyer, or whether you're an author. You've got to explore all of those gray areas. I want to go back to sort of power and, and justice, two words that are in the theme of this session. And all of you, as authors, have power. You have the power to determine what happens to the characters you choose to write about. You have the power to determine where the story goes and whether it finishes with a neatly tied bow or in an open-ended way. And I'm just in interested to know because there are other levels of doing justice. So you do justice to your story, you do justice, you try to, ju to, do, to do justice to the themes that underlie that story, you try to do justice to your characters, you try to do justice to your readers, uh, you try to do justice to your grandmother <laughs> and the storytelling skills that she passed on to you. So I sort of wondered and, and I've been told by so many authors that I've interviewed over the 30-odd years that I've been interviewing authors that there's very little, particularly the good books, so the non-Jeffrey Diva books, that there's an organic... <laughs> Note to there self. Is, there no. is an organic <laughs> movement and that the characters take you over, the story takes you over. So you probably don't think about all of these levels of justice that are implicit in the authorial process, forgive that phrase. Well, I should have very direct uh, interaction with justice around the eye of the beholder because I did, ha there has been a long gap, but the book didn't sell. To, uh, it didn't get bought by a publisher until the Me Too movement happened and then that happened and bang, it sold immediately and one of the reasons I think was that what, what the latest iteration of Me Too saw two different things. So one was that brutality and perpetrators just got away with it. If we, I mean, the most obvious ones are, are Kelly, um, Harvey Weinstein, Prince Andrew, um, you know, there's the, we know Bill Cosby, all of those sorts of ones that we know of. And I was trying to think, like, why, why did this book sell so immediately after me too. And I was thinking, it's not because um, I was saying anything different or women were saying anything different. It was that moment, that shift in power meant that people could hear. The, the sort of earplug of injustice got removed and suddenly the complexity of what women were saying and what was so striking of so many of the cases um, was the complexity of the messiness that these are grown up women with confused and complex and interesting lives who 
had carried this stuff. So there was a shift in the auditory system of the world in a way which the book could then kind of go into. So it's, there's an interesting interplay um, with how things are in the world and with what you write under a kind of a compulsion. Because with this book, this is to do with the, with the writing again. I had written a sixth Claire Hart called Teacher's Pet, which those of you who are rocket scientists in the audience, which is all of you, will understand what would have been about, you know, abuse of schoolgirls, and it was about production of pornographic images and stuff. I wrote the whole book, and I thought I had my lovely Claire Hart with her wide-open feminist eyes, but I thought all I'm doing is replicating this crime of looking. So it took me a long time to find a way of writing a story about images that steal the soul, in, if I can put it like that, without ever seeing the pictures, which is, was very complicated to do. But then it fitted in, there was a shift of justice. I do think Me Too shifted something in how we understand. Now we're getting the backlash, I think, a bit, but it, they do talk to the world books, and the, you know, the world so talks you, you, to the books. your primary sort of I'm suggesting there's a ranking, which there's not necessarily the case, but one of the primary forms of justice that you're seeking is to explain to a now, at least temporarily, listening audience just how bad this shit is and has been and continues to be for women. But that doesn't mean that the characters and the story are subordinate to that, because that's, that's the strength of good books. All of that comes together. I'm a bit with Mark Twain. Well, he said, if you have a message, send Western Union, you know, use yeah. Western Union. <laughs> um, no, I wanted to explore this long duration of crime and how women still, it's very much about a mother, Cora, and her daughter, Freya, and then this other daughter who sort of becomes her kind of honorary daughter in a way, this very damaged girl, about how women keep going, they keep loving their children, and they, but then they still, you put this intergenerational trauma of a mother taking care of her daughter who watches her mother all the time knowing there is a hand grenade inside her and her mom's lost, you know, she's disassociated it. So how does that play out? What happens if we don't work it out? Um, so it was more to understand how we carry on. Do you have any sense of a ranking of doing justice to the various things that the good authors, the great authors do justice to? Character, story, time, audience mm, no. you just write a story yeah and I, I mean I, 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 I was laughing when you said you know authors have power because I've never felt as an author that I actually have power when I'm writing um, I feel like the characters have all the power uh, my job is to listen and then you know do as I'm told um, it's, it's a very wonderfully powerless feeling actually it's like a you know letting go and just watching what happens which Usually in, in real life, you cannot really do, especially if you're an adult. But like, you know, as an author, I think you can really just see how it all plays out, and that's the beauty of it, yeah. So that your primary, your primary power is the power you have to give voice to the characters who tell you what you <laughs> There you go, yeah. Okay. I've, I've, I like the power of manipulating other people's characters. As you know, I like to put Dion Mayer's Benny Chrysal in my book. <laughs> and that gives me endless pleasure because then I can mess, him, mess around with him. So in, in Heistman, 
Eberhardt meets Benny Chrysal in a coffee shop, <laughs> and Benny uses saccharin, doesn't put sugar in his coffee. Yeah. I mean, Dion Mayer's like, what the hell's with the saccharin? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like he's losing weight. He's looking it's a good. comment you know? on the emotional yes. tone of your books, Dion. Oh, exactly. I said, don't mess with me. I'll make him come out of the closet or <laughs> do something. <Yeah. laughs> so that's real power. Yeah. <laughs> but what, yeah, I mean, on a more serious note, the, what I think something as a, as a white male writer in South Africa has troubled me and, 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 and yeah, intrigued me since the very beginning of, of my writing. And that is, what can I write? Whose story can I write? And I'm still not sure that I understand the answer to that for me, myself. Um, in the Heisman, Valencia is, is gay woman of color. Now, she's a very important character to me. I think she's a very important character in the book. Um, I like the way that I've dealt with her, but I haven't delved too deeply into her as in terms of her choices, her pain, what it's like to be a, a gay woman of color in the South African police force you know, in 2022. Um, because I'm not sure that it's my story to tell and I'm not sure that I can, can tell it. I run the child abuse unit at Red Cross Children's Hospital. I think I understand child abuse, but I don't think it's my story to tell. I don't think I can write a book about a survivor, a child abuse survivor. Maybe I can, I'm not sure. I'm just somebody, not sure who. Somebody has to. Um, yeah, that's why I wrote in Yenzi. Ideally, people who have been through that will tell their stories, and increasingly, they are telling those sorts of stories yeah. in various fora. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, it's, as, as a reader, I mean, if Andrew Bryan wrote a book only about middle-aged, um, university-educated white no, it's men, not I'm not it's sure not good. No, it's not, it's not sounding good, even as you articulate it, John. <laughs> I mean, what, one of the things I think that genre fiction certainly gave me, and I think maybe everyone who was writing it, is it is very, they're very much a form which is about the outside. So it's mm. about the spaces in between people. And when I first started writing, I just thought my private investi my investigator character, my cop character, were the only people who could move in real life. Those are cops and journalists can go from the poorest informal settlement to the president's cocktail party mm. legitimately. So it mm. was like the job of the person took them all all around and you, much of genre fiction is writing about the interactions between people. So what you're saying about your character Valencia, mm. um, it's not, the form is not dependent on, on sort of interior reach or um, mm. a kind of internal, mode. you can infer it from what the person does. Mm. So it, I found it a very um, revelatory form of using it as a form of asking my questions, which were similar questions to what we all had when we started this terrible wave of anti-intellectualism. <laughs> but Sophie, when you wrote History of Man, I mean, that's a white Afrikaner, and you somehow inserted yourself into his... <laughs> I mean, Emil Kutsir, who is the sort of, if you like, the central character of the previous book, and yeah. who is a central character in this book because he disappears. He walks into the bush, and there were two leopards and a lion lurking around the tall elephant grass. And by the end of the book, we still don't know what happened to him. There are various people, there are lots of theories. Mm. But, I mean, you know, just the, 
the verisimilitude. That is how you say it, Margaret. Yeah. Verisimilitude. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Like I can't say ignominious. To pick up on what you said, it's extraordinary. I mean, Ilkut yeah. is an absolutely fully rounded mm. creation, absolutely credible. I think for me, it, it's never been um, like a question of like what. So I think most of us get caught up in the what and who because it's like who, who gets to tell whose story. That's, that's, for me, that's not the primary question, it's why, you're right. Like, why are you telling the story? And like he just said, like John just said, you, you know, you're not gonna write about, you know, <laughs> Andrew Brown, Andrew <laughs> everywhere, you know? Um, so every character you write is, is not you. Minor character, major, so like, we get caught up on who the major character is, but you know, usually if that character exists in a world, you're already writing otherness in the different characters that they interact with. Um, and I think the why, why are you writing this character, why are you telling the story is so much important than, you know, who are you to tell this story? Mm. Um, I think because of where we come from and the histories of where we come from, it is an important question to ask, but I think sometimes we, they start silencing another perspective or, you know, so it, that becomes dangerous, right? Because uh, creativity is just that and fiction is just that, right? And the ability to write should be a freeing thing. It should not be something that closes us in. So I, um, yeah, when, I, when it came to writing Emil Kutsia, I, I wanted to tell the story about colonial Rhodesia, and I felt like a white man was the best way to tell that story. And, you know, I wasn't gonna question about, you know, I'm black and female, and, you know, it, it, it was things to think about, but definitely not things to stop me from writing. Nice we answer. do, we will now go to questions. You know, Margie was talking about how the journalists can navigate from one area to another. I remember in late 1990, when uh, the townships were aflame, and I picked up a Canadian journalist at um, Jan Smuts Airport, as it was then, and we went to Alexandra Township, where there were pitched battles between the comrades and the hostile dwellers, and we were ducking bullets, and um, a bullet passed about, I reckon it must have passed a couple of meters over Joan's head, and she was completely and utterly terrified. And then we drove 7.6 kilometers up Louis Boiter Avenue, as it was called then, to St. John's College, and there were <laughs> 22 young white men dressed in white playing cricket. <laughs> and Joan was just, wow, what is this country? <laughs> ah, I wish we had an answer to that. Questions from anywhere. Uh, okay, there's a hand up. Do we have a mic? Yes, we do. Okay, and then you've got the, the one in front there. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Um, uh, I love one of the threads that was in that conversation about the way that we're increasingly recognised how prolonged trauma is, um, that, you know, it's not something that happens and you just get over it and move on. It's a, it's a lifelong thing. And I wanted to ask Andrew, please, with his little hat on, in what way, if at all, do you feel that the law is accommodating that? Because it's a very, it's an incredibly grey area, and the law changes slowly. Do you feel that in any way there's a recognition of that within the law as, you know, as the legal system as it currently stands? I think my greatest concern about law, and it's not about South African law, because I believe we have a superb constitution and an 
excellently functional judiciary. But despite that, my fear about law and the judicial process is that it is a re-trauma, that it's, it's exactly the opposite of what we were hoping it would be, which is a catharsis, an amelioration, a healing. That's what we imagine the legal process to be. And almost inevitably, it's, it's not. And you, the process of cross-examination, the process of giving evidence, of, of just going to court and seeing the perpetrator, the, all of those things are retelling the story again. But I don't know how else to do it. I, I don't know what the, what the other alternative to that is if you want justice in a legal sense to to follow a process that is fair and that gives everybody a chance to be represented, to have a say, to question the evidence that is being given. But not wearing my lawyer's hat, wearing my police hat, working in the child abuse unit, we're taking traumatized children who've been through unimaginable uh, trauma and abuse. I'm terrified about taking them to court. I know that I must. There's a perpetrator who needs to be stopped but I also know what this child is going to go through and will carry for the, for the rest mm. of their lives. So I don't think there's a clear answer to your, to your question. I think it's a, it's a process we need. I think it's, it's critical to our idea of law and order and, and justice in a legal sense. But it is a traumatizing process and I'm not sure how to, to avoid that. You know, Weinberg has got an amazing sexual offenses court where children can, and, 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 and any adult victim can give evidence behind closed doors, there's video, so they're, they're, they're counselors, they're social workers, so there are things in place to try and make it an easier process, but ultimately it's going to be a, a renewed trauma, and it is going, as Margie says, it's going to last a lifetime. How much, that's a quick follow-up question before we go to the next one there, how much should our parole system accommodate the trauma of the victims. Um, Oscar Pistorius is asking the courts to force correctional services to give him a parole hearing. How much should Reva Steenkamp's family's trauma factor in that decision, the continuing refusal of the government to consider uh, paroling Janusz Wallus, for mm. example, mm. And, and there there's a family trauma and there's a national trauma mm. because of Chris mm. Harney who was killed. So. How, how, how much would that be a factor weighing in on these sorts of things? It decisions? is a factor and should be a factor. I've actually attended parole board hearings um, on, part, on the part of behalf of families to argue against parole being granted and invariably it's taken seriously by the parole board and it is definitely one of those factors. Um, I'm not sure to what extent parole, somebody being released early is also re-traumatizing. I, th I think in some ways it might be because it's our judicial and system and uh, our society saying, well, you've served half your sentence. That's good enough. You can come back out again. It wasn't, almost in a sense, it wasn't that serious that it justified what you got given. So having said that, um, as you know, John, I'm, I'm somebody who was given a second chance. I was sentenced for three years direct imprisonment in Polesmore for political offences, and two judges gave me a break and said, well, we'll see what you can do with your life. Um, and for that, you know, I could yeah. not be more grateful. So there's a personal angle to it too. Next, please. And we've got a, um, there, w there was a hand up there earlier. And then there's one a little lower down. 
Hi, uh, this is a question for Sipiwe. Um, what I'm very interested in is sort of reversal of roles where uh, aggressors become, where victims become aggressors. Um, this whole new age thing where you basically are told how to think and international mainstream media pummels these issues where China's the bad guy, Putin's the bad guy, and America's telling the whole world how to behave. So how do you feel as a black woman in South Africa who's not South African, who's Zimbabwean, who's possibly getting a lot of flack from that point of view, how do you feel here looking at the government right now and saying, well, are they really doing a good job or is this now role reversal where the victims have become the oppressors? Thank you. Well, thank you for that question. I, um, I actually, I don't know because it's, it's so complicated. And I think, again, this is something that needs active work. I think most of the times we just find ourselves acting. And I, I think, you know, what something like Operation Dudula, so I actually live in Zimbabwe and I only come to South Africa occasionally. Uh, but something like Operation Tudula for me is a very ahistoric thing, right? Because it's, it's we, are, we are basing our understanding of ourselves and who we are on borders, like on what, what's within a border, right? And not necessarily the history of the region that we come from. Um, and so for me, there's a, a lot of, you know, in, a, in an interesting way, uh, uh, a way of erasing the past 100 years, 150 years of this region's history, which is way more interconnected than we think of as nations, right? Um, not just, uh, you know, Amdebele. So my people originally came from Wazulu Natal. So there's a way in which when we think of coming to South Africa, it's not coming to a new country, right? There's a way in which in Zimbabwe itself, we are marginalized because we are a minority group. Um, so it's, you know, you start asking yourself, so where, where do we belong? We don't belong there anymore. We don't belong here anymore. Um, so again, these are like very difficult questions because there's, there's, there's actually someone trying to find a place to belong, but they're not belonging anywhere. And there are borders that are made uh, or are porous for whatever reason. Um, there are governments on both sides not doing much to stop that, you know, um, so it, it's difficult to blame or it's difficult to say, uh, for instance, the governments are just retaliating or doing something bad. I think it's a complicated thing to inherit what we've inherited as countries. Like, uh, I think colonialism was uh, a system, yes, but it was a very particular kind of system. And to inherit that and to try and do something different with it is very difficult and it's a lot of work and I think you know, I think nations haven't been built since we got independence. I think we have countries with people in them and we, uh, we have to try and build that sense of nationality and nationhood. Uh, that's the first thing and that comes from real conversations and a lot of hard work. Before we start saying, you know, who's doing what and what's happening, I think we need to just try and have a sense of who are we. And I think that has to be, for me, it, maybe this is a very personal thing, a very regional question and not a very nationalist question. It's who are we as a region, given the shared history that we have over the past 400 years? We will have time for one more question. So, um, 
just, okay, well, don't wait for a mic, just, um, just oh, you've got a mic. Um, thanks for a wonderful talk, everybody. Um, uh, a week ago, two weeks ago, I went to the launch of the 10 Years in Joburg Blinded City one by Matthew Willemson, and I asked him this question, which I think I can ask you guys, which is like, where do you find your peace, personally, as a writer, when you're attracted and kind of drawn to stories of unutterable violence and like the worst of humanity and so forth? Because it's something that I can't do. I would never be able to write these subjects because I would, having to go back to the grindstone of these stories would, um, would end me as a creative person. So where do you find the distance to write those? It's going to have to be a quick answer each. <laughs> I just <laughs> wanted to say quickly, in the worst of humanity is actually where you find the best. So you see an absolutely horrendous murder or assault, but what you also see is somebody gathering that person into their arms and continuing. So in some ways, the, the sort of resilience of the spirit and of just of the human body is what you find in that sort of comfort. It might be the comfort of strangers, but also what you're doing as a writer, what I'm doing, is you go into the worst. Violence obliterates all aesthetics, all feeling, all language. And you, I feel this is what I'm doing, is restoring language and order and beauty into something that was stolen from somebody. So the, it's difficult, but you're restoring. You say, no, this is human. This is a person was here. A person suffered. So it's a kind of restoration. And I've seen the greatest kindness in some of the most awful situations that I've been in and seen other people in. So it's both. In the arms of my partner. <laughs> John. I'm very, glad, I'm very glad he's not, he's not um, embroidering on that. Sibiwa, <laughs> <laughs> would you? Um, I'll go with Maggie on this one. I think it, it is uh, sort of the... Um, finding that restorative thing and telling the story, right? In, in bringing back, giving back something. I, I think that's it, yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for coming. These are the three books, The Eye of the Beholder by Margie Orford, Heist by Andrew Brown, and The Quality of Mercy by Sipua Gloria and Dorvu. Buy them, and I'm sure they'll have copies of previous books, and buy those too. Make their wrists sore from all the signing they have to do, which they will do now. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening. This event was made possible by the support of the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture, the City of Cape Town and the Heinrich Bull Foundation. See you in the next episode.